0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey, everybody. Checking in from Cheeseman Park in downtown Denver, which is a k- kind of a weird name. Cheeseman. I don't know anything about that, but I hope this, whoever it's named after made cheese. Apparently, this park was used to be a cemetery, um, and someone told me when it rains really hard that, like, bones stick out of the ground. I really hope that's true. just be really disappointed if that was an urban legend. Um, anyway, got the van back, which is really, really freaking exciting. Um, although we had a good week in, uh, in Golden, we did a meetup and got a lot of work done, recorded some podcast episodes. So aside from the insane price tag of fixing the engine, um, it was good. Nonetheless, I guess, uh, definitely worse places to get stranded in than Golden, um, Next, we're going to head out to Gunnison, where I've mentioned my grandparents have a cabin, um, doing the whole, like, Gunnison, Crested Butte, Paonia situation, like that little loop, um, and then going to go into Crestone and do the San Luis Valley. I've never been to the sand dunes down there, so maybe we'll check that out, um, and then head on over to the San Juans and do, um, Telluride, Ray, Silverton, all of that gorgeousness. Um... Yeah, in the last couple months of the trip here, which is kind of crazy, or at least this iteration of the trip. um, I think I've probably mentioned in past episodes that I don't really know why I have an apartment. (laughs) This style of living quite suits me. Um, So probably will go home for a few months, but then keep traveling. Uh, Maybe to different places, maybe stay in some places for a longer period of time. Uh, Definitely the, the one thing about this type of lifestyle is it's not super conducive to like big projects like writing projects for example Um, and we've been moving around constantly because we had so much ground to cover but maybe in the future kind of staying put in uh, in certain places so that we can get more larger project type stuff done but honestly no complaints it's been really fun to travel around and see a bunch of places I haven't seen before and visit some new ones and meet people Man, that's just been the coolest ever. It's like really being able to say that like I have friends everywhere. I was so starved for, starved for community for so much of of my life, and now I feel like I have sort of developed a community wherever I go. And so fucking grateful for that. Um, we've hung a lot out, uh, hung out with um, this guy Mike and. If Mike's listened to this, I'm sorry. I still don't remember your last name. Um, Mike has a, a podcast called Mike Adelic, Um that I was just... Uh, he just interviewed me on his show this morning, actually. So that'll be coming out soon. He's going to be on mine next week. Um, and yeah, hanging out with him and his girlfriend here several times while we've been in Denver. That's been really awesome. Um, really excited to bring you that episode and have you guys hear me on a podcast I haven't actually done that in a while I was on a couple when the podcast first launched but haven't been on one since so it was nice to be on the other side of the mic um, but yeah we had a meetup in Golden while we were waiting for the van to be fixed and we had one last night in Boulder. this place called Rayback Collective which was really really a cool spot awesome people as per usual always meet awesome people um, and yeah gonna hit the road again in a little bit, get out of the city, uh, and, uh, yeah, finish up this leg of the trip. Time goes real fast and you're having fun, you guys. (laughs) I can't believe it's been, I think actually exactly three months today. I think we left on May 6th. Maybe it's the 5th today. I don't know. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. It's the other benefit. It's just kind of like living without time and space. It's great. Um, Oh, and also at the uh, meetup last night, we met a bunch of people who are part of, like, the van life community, which I'd heard about in passing, but hadn't actually talked to anybody um, directly who did it. But I guess they have these meetups all around. Everyone who lives in vans, they do meetups, and then sort of, like, smaller groups of them travel together. And it's really cool. It's cool to see how people are embracing different ways of living and sort of, like, rejecting traditional expectations and structures around security and I definitely think van life is one of those things where it probably seems a lot more challenging than it is um or like more of a sacrifice than it is and don't get me wrong there are some issues for sure like mosquitoes I'm currently destroying a part of my leg itching (laughs) um mosquito bites oh my god we stayed in this one place the other day that was probably the worst that we've ever experienced mosquito wise just horrible. Horrible. I, and I, I wonder also why, like, some places are just so much worse than others. Like, there are places that are close together, but one spot is just so much worse. I mean, I guess standing water. But anyway, I'm not going to spend this episode complaining about mosquitoes. But they fucking suck. They suck. Um, yeah, thank you all for sending me messages and suggestions for things. I, I finally feel like I'm at the point with this podcast listener- ship wise where I'm getting like regular messages and responses from you guys, whether that's just saying hi or suggesting someone that you think should be on the podcast. It's, it's really fun to kind of watch this community grow and interact with you guys. And yeah, it's been fucking great. So, um, always feel free to reach out, even if it's something silly. Um, I love hearing from you where you are, what you've enjoyed, what you haven't enjoyed. Um, And especially people who you think would be fun to have in the show. I follow up with the vast majority of them. So, Um, And speaking of cool people to have in the show, I actually reached out to, I've been sort of like semi-stalking a few people who I've really wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. Um, One of them is Francis Weller. He wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. He talks about grief. Um, I would say maybe my favorite book. Um, actually, we talked, me and Sean, who's going to be on the podcast today, um, we talked about that a, bu- a bit. He had the book on his bookshelf, which was really nice to see. Um, anyway, uh, Francis Weller finally responded. He is open to being on the podcast, um, as well as another author, Michael Warner, who wrote The Trouble with Normal, um, and another book called Publix and Counterpublics, um, really sort of opened up my mind to... Uh, you know really challenging the status quo um the trouble with normal i read when i was like 13 or 14 my dad gave it to me um and michael warner is gay and was basically making an argument against gay marriage um because of you know the sort of like heteronormative expectation that that's what we're supposed to do and it was just fascinating for me to to see that you can really challenge everything no matter who you are and you don't have to fit any into any sort of box um so he's agreed to be on the podcast. I'm going to try and meet mo- both of them, both Francis Weller and Michael Warner in person. Um, really, really prefer talking to people in person, especially people I respect. I just selfishly want to meet them. Um, who else am I excited about? Oh, uh, Jason Holly. He's an astrologer and psychologist um, who lives in Santa Fe. I'm going to go see him at the end of the month and have him on the podcast. We're going to talk about mythology and stories Um, and also update you guys on like where I'm at as far as the whole astrology thing goes. I know when I started this podcast, I talked about it quite a bit. Um, as far as like it being an important part of my journey and, um, I've come a long way with that and my feelings about that world and just spirituality and belief and astrology. So I'm looking forward to sort of having that episode act as an update on all of that for you guys. And, um, Jason is someone who I really, really respect within that world after, I don't know, sort of like becoming just sort of saddened by, I think in any of these sort of like healer spaces, um, there's so much just like abuse of power and narcissism. Um, and, uh, I think it's one of those facts of life that for me is just really hard to accept. I think it's one of the most naive aspects about me that like. It's still hard for me to believe that they're just shitty people in the world, which is such a childlike way to look at the world. But that is where my psyche has remained. Um, I don't know. It's like I'm conscious that that exists. But then when I come face to face with it, I'm still uh, a little shook. (laughs) And definitely don't want to perpetuate it. Um, This morning when I was talking to Mike, you know, I recognize when I was starting this podcast that like people were going to listen to it and listen to what I had to say and that like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I didn't want to be one of those people that wasn't walking the talk or admitting that I could be wrong or admitting that like, I'm just a random person with opinions who's sharing them over a microphone and I'm not a fucking God or a healer or shaman or any of these things. Um, you know, I think really the people we look, look up to are like, people are a thing because we make them a thing, right? Like people, someone is a hero because we make them a hero, hopefully not because they say they're a hero. Um, I think that's just an interesting way to think about it. Like I want you guys to make me whatever you want me to be. And hopefully that's a pretty, um, casual, just a girl type of a thing. Friend, friend from afar. Um, But yeah, anyway, I am going on a tangent, but, uh, some really exciting guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you conversations. I cannot wait to have, um, today's episode is with Sean Dinkle. Um, he works, uh, predominantly with men and, um, focuses, he's a therapist and focuses specifically on anger and rage. Um, it's one of those funny things. Like someone's like, Oh, I focus on male rage. And I'm like, my eyes lit up. It's like oh yes let's talk about that on the podcast um I think that's probably it for now keep sending me messages suggestions for people to have on um I have to say this podcast is just becoming more and more fun the more it grows the more people that I talk to um the different sort of shapes it takes on and themes that are covered way more than I ever expected were going to be when I first started it um Oh, also, I'm going to be talking to, I think, a bunch of... I've only really had one episode that talks specifically about climate. It was with um, Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute. But I'm actually going to be going to visit some farmers down in Gunnison. Um, so I should have more of those episodes coming your way too. Lots of exciting stuff, you guys. Um, if you want to support the show, I guess I always say the best thing is just tell your friends about it. Um, you can leave some stars on itunes or a review that's really nice and easy and free um i probably should be asking for money through patreon which i have and if you want to send me some money on patreon patreon.com slash you can but honestly my bigger concern is just growing this community um and so i'm inclined to just tell you to share episodes with your friends and post about it on social media that's uh that's my favorite. (laughs) That's where I feel like the real value is. At some point I'll probably like need to like make more money doing this. But in the meantime, um, that was never really the goal. When I set out to create the podcast, I knew that I'd have to make the time, um, in order to actually record it and have the financial capacity to buy equipment and travel around and meet people. Um, but I would say I had pretty low expectations for its growth. And it was more of just like a personal therapy for me, which it's absolutely proven to be. And I am really grateful that you guys are out there and want to hear me ramble on about stuff. Because um, as beneficial as you may think this is for you, which is great if you do, um, it's just as beneficial for me too. Uh, spent a lot of years not saying what I had to say. Um, and so to not only say it, but to have people that actually resonate with it and feel less weird when I do say it is fucking awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, I think I had other stuff to say. I always forget and I never look at any notes, but alas, <laughs> um, enjoy today's episode and, uh, much love to you all. Talk to you guys at the end of the show. All right. So I am here with Sean.
1: Yes, you (laughs) are.
2: (laughs)
0: Um, Who graciously agreed to do a double header podcast today with me and Chris Ryan. Um, So I guess, first of all, I'd love to hear from your perspective, from you, I've like, you know, gone on your website and read your bio and all of that. But instead of me introducing you, I'd love to hear you kind of just talk about what you do. How do you define it?
2: Um, Well, so uh, I think from the Logistical standpoint, um, you know, by trade I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of Colorado, and I'm also duly licensed as a certified addiction counselor. Um, and I've been practicing for about 14 years, 15 years um, at this point. But during that time, I've I've had a, a, a fairly extensive practice. So. For example, in the beginning, so for about the first 10 years when I was um, licensed also as a state-approved domestic violence provider, that's probably the most of what I've done. Mm. Um, You know, it was said in grad school that the average person, you know, who's kind of running a full-time group practice should do, you know, run about four groups a week. And at no point in time did I ever have less than 10. Um, (laughs) And at one point it was up to 14. That's way too much, and I would not encourage or recommend anybody do that. Um, one of the benefits that came from that, though was I got a lot of data points, not not data like you know that I could go publish a research project on, but seeing patterns because there were so many people that I was interacting with and so many you know consistent conversations and just trying new things and um, experimenting with new things. so i got to see enough people that I think that really taught me more than I would have if i didn 't have something that full, so it wore me down i wouldn 't recommend that to any. You know, clinician coming in, but one of the reasons why that um, I think that practice grew to the point that it did um, was that I didn't really follow the protocol that I was supposed to. You know, in terms of what the state wanted us to do is you know approve providers and providing specific education and things of that nature. So, um, so that's what I did for about you know ten years. That was the majority of what I did. I still saw some individuals um, at that time. Um, most of these folks are court-mandated, which has its own kind of un, you know unique nuance. Um, and then, uh, let's see, about four years ago, I decided to move up here full-time. Um, here being. Here
1: being a <laughs> wonderful
2: place of Hot Sulphur Springs, Colorado, a town of 708, according to the last <laughs> census. So not a very big place. My practice is in Winter Park, so... Um, so I still practice. I still counsel three days a week, mostly individuals. I don't do any group stuff anymore. I miss it quite a bit. Um, but then there's aspects that I don't, like the logistical side of just working, you know, with the state and some of probation's requirements and, you know, some of the things that I didn't necessarily agree with. So um, I wanted to scale my practice back then and uh, really kind of support my wife in her career. Um, she's a middle school principal up here. And so that's really what brought me up here. Mm-hmm. So we decided that, um, that that provided us some opportunities that we wouldn't have had if I would have kept my practice down in the front range. So, um, it was a transition and it was much more challenging than I thought. Um, but in the end, I, a lot of the same kind of concepts that I've come to, to learn and understand still apply here. So that's really about it. So at this point, um, conservatively have probably facilitated over 9,000 sessions some you know 4,000 probably being individual or couple focused and then um, the dominant majority being angry men yeah yeah
0: and did you know going in that that's what you wanted to focus on was specifically men and anger or did that kind of evolve over time it
2: was a quick evolution but not mm. specifically so when I first got into it and I think one of the things that motivated me to get into the field was being put in front of counselors as a young child. Mom, there was a lot of violence in my family that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and not the typical, you know, not seeing my mom get beat necessarily, but uh, more of the kind of psychological, manipulative stuff, things of that nature. You know, dad would often, you know, sabotage the car so that, you know, she couldn't leave. So there was a lot of control. She didn't work. So there was a lot of those kind of domestic violence uh, things going on in my family And my mom was wise enough to kind of realize the fighting that was going back and forth and the throwing of dishes or whatever the hell it was that um, that probably wasn't too good for me. But rather than putting themselves in counseling or trying to change their own lives, um, they got me in front of people. And at a very early age, uh, I just remembered (laughs) really thinking that most people just did not have a clue. And so there was a part of me that just thought from, you know, from even being a kid, like I could do this a lot better. And, mm. and
0: um, when you say they put you in front of people, what do you Counselors. Saying? Yeah. Oh, so counselors. they would, they oh, okay, would put gotcha. me into counseling and that still yeah. happens today. So <laughs> Same. My,
2: my kid is, you yeah. know, uh, you know, is being exposed to the yeah. things. So rather than stop the exposure, let's just get them help. So mm. how, to, and, and that still doesn't make any sense to me, but a yeah. lot of people operate that way. So, um, and then what I didn't go through in home was perpetuated further in school so I had a real rough time in school with teachers who I would have, you know not all of them but a lot of them that that just furthered the abuse you know of course I was you know had attention problems and things of that nature that any kid that was growing up in those kind of environments would have and uh there was just really no I didn't find a lot of people had a lot of empathy and it was real punish bait, punishment based and things of that nature and so um Feeling like nobody really cared to know me as a child, I think, was the first thing that motivated me. And I never forgot what it was like to be an adolescent. So in my adolescence, when I was really trying to focus, how the hell do I get out of the home? How do I get out of, you know, from underneath my father's care, especially? Mm -hmm. How do, you know, how can I do that? What do I need to do? Um, That, so that piece never really left me. And I knew I wasn't the only one that had similar experiences. So initially what got me in the field is that I wanted to be the counselor that I wanted when I was growing up all the way through, you know, pre-adolescence and then adolescence. Um, and then so I started working with adolescents and adolescents particularly ones who were in trouble with the system. So a lot of my earlier work was forensic work. And so mm-hmm. they would be, you know, ranging anything from, you know, assaults to drug charges to, you know, MIPs or, you know, what have you. So I did that for about 12 months and and, and grew an adolescent arm of a, of a practice that I was working for down in the Front Range in Denver. And um, quickly I realized I can't really be that much help to these kids because they're – Whatever I can provide, they're going back to environments and homes where this is just continually getting perpetuated. And so I thought, well, why not go to the source, which is the adults? So because I was doing forensic work, that just blended nicely into the domestic violence population, which was what was fueling a lot of these adolescents' drug use, their own anger, their own violence, all that kind of stuff. So... Um, that's really what, what paved the way. And then when I got that credential, um, and then I started working with perpetrators and found that to be a lot more rewarding. And I would like to say I did much more, um, in terms of helping the adolescent population by working with adult males than I ever did working directly with adolescents. So, Hmm. yeah.
0: What was the, was there sort of any, like, um, I guess I didn't experience this, but like, um, people judging the entire therapeutic process. Like when you were a kid, like I feel like some, I'm I'm not surprised, but it's interesting that your parents were conscious enough or okay to be like, you go to therapy and that's acceptable. And, um, uh, you know, what was their choice kind of like, this is a good thing to be doing? Or did you see when you were a kid that people were sort of judging that process of being in therapy and that that was like taboo? And,
2: you know, um, that's a really good question and nobody really knew, like it wasn't anything that I ever talked to my friends about and none mm-hmm. of it really lasted. So okay. it, uh, you know, I would maybe go see somebody once or twice and then it would just end. And I, and I don't <laughs> even recall if I would, if I was vocal, just like, this is useless. This is a complete waste of time. Um, I wasn't really defiant in in the sessions, um, but I just never really felt like anybody connected with me um, in those earlier experiences until I was 19, and that's when I had my first positive therapeutic experience. And after that, I was never really shy about my own therapeutic, you know, experiences. Right. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't really remember there being much taboo um, around that, you know. So, yeah, yeah I don't re- I don't really recall that. Um, or feeling that, even yeah. if there was. I mean, there certainly is around therapy, but I don't remember personalizing that.
0: Yeah, I anyway. feel like I had the same experience. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, when you, what was, was sort of one of the first things that piqued your interest as far as this whole male rage thing? I mean, obviously, your relationship with your dad was probably <laughs> mm-hmm. motivational. Um, and then, was that sort of informed more by talking to more men about this? And like, did you move from a phase of like being angry to empathetic and wanting to explore it? Or like, what was that process for you being like, I, this is a valid thing to explore and I want to help people with it. And
2: yeah. So what led me to my first therapeutic experience, uh, was the only time i faced any sort of legal trouble, uh, mm. in my life. Um, and that was an assault, uh, on my own father. And so that led to a mandation of, Counseling that was of the kind of the group format that I you know later ended up facilitating. It was many years down the road from that time so so it wasn 't like it was a quick transition um, but I remember the moment when I sat down with the person who was uh, when I was doing the intake uh, at the place and well, actually let me back up to tell you a little bit about what had happened so um, my I experienced some physical abuse, not much, some, but not much, um, on both parents. Um, so that was fairly sporadic. But what I got more than anything was put downs and criticisms. So it was, "You're never going to be shit. You're, you know, you're useless. You're it, just daily. I mean, almost. If, if a day went by where I wasn't being criticized and put down for being a lazy piece of shit, just like my mom, that was the most common phrase. Then." Um, there weren't many days were it like that. So one particular day, um, and I was a fairly small kid um, as well, and even then, um, and my dad was much bigger than I was. I had just got done doing a um, a music recording session. So music's the other thing that kind of helped me through my my childhood and my you know my adolescence. And if it wasn't for music, I would have really been in trouble. But. Um, So I just got done doing some recording in a studio that my friend was apprenticing at. Um, And I had a demo of that recording. And it was like the coolest thing that I'd ever done in my life to that point. And so I came home and I wanted to share with my dad. Always, probably now in hindsight, looking for just something that he would be proud of. Something that he would give me some sort of positive encouragement from. Or, um, you know, be happy for, whatever. And... He happened to be drinking at that point in time, and he was fairly silent, and I was playing in this, and he didn't, he didn't comment on it. He just had this kind of angry, disdainful look, and, uh, and I asked him in all sincerity. I said, you know... Well, because he started going into this, you know, to, again, to that critical side, and out of genuine curiosity, I said, if you didn't want kids,
1: mm.
2: why did you have me? And he laughed, and in that moment... I completely read it out and and I hit him and uh, split his face open and i 'm glad now that i wasn 't bigger than I was because i don 't know that I would have stopped yeah. um, and that was the first time I'd ever experienced that kind of power or rage within my own self and yeah it scared me um and and i i i didn't even know that that was there i mean i i knew it was there i knew that i was angry with him but i didn't know that level existed so um so that was one thing so then you know i got you know placed on diversion and had to do some some treatment but the intake counselor so this is where it's important was the first time that an adult had validated my experience. And I never lied about it. And I took responsibility and said mm-hmm. I wished I wouldn't have done it. I wished I would have communicated a lot differently because mm-hmm. it obviously wasn't effective. Um, nothing else I had tried to that point was effective either, but that really wasn't working. So so at that point, I thought, well, um, or so, so now I'm sitting there explaining what had happened in the offense. And I, you know, and I said, you know, I, I, I regret my actions. I mean, I, I did immediately, in part because I had this resonance even back then that I gave my power away, hmm. and i didn 't like that, so that was what was mostly disappointing to me is that um, that somebody was able to almost like I had a point and it got washed away through my actions. you know hmm. I had a position that that got blurred you know through my own act of violence, so yeah. in that sense, um, but when I was saying this and describing it as I am to you um, the counselor, in his exact words, I believe were, uh, you know, that's really fucked up. And so he wasn't condoning what I did necessarily, but understanding why it
1: happened. Right.
2: And that was the first time an adult had ever done that. And that in and of itself was empowering to me. And I clearly recognized the shift. And then some of the things that, that I was being exposed to just started clicking and making sense. And then that's really what started my own personal journey, going, I don't want to be like this, and I don't want to continue these family dynamics. And they were all around me and all around the community. Yeah. And so it was from that point on was how do I get out of this? you know? And how do I, how do I learn what's happened to me? And then how do I recover from it if it's possible?
0: Yeah.
2: And, yeah.
0: Yeah, anger is one of those fascinating things, I feel like, where it exists in... Uh, so many different ways like on the one hand to kind of um, rely on it mm-hmm. and to just express that there yeah. is a sense of giving away power there's a sense of I think avoiding emotionality mm-hmm. and on the other hand I also experienced quite a bit of emotional abuse growing up and didn't think that anger was something I should be feeling mm-hmm. like, it was you know not a valid emotion it yeah. was weak it was yeah. so I repressed it repressed and repressed, it and, repressed it. and of course like understandably had a lot of anger, right? Um, And I remember when I first started coming to terms with everything that had gone on and I was really angry and I made some decisions that were like, I'm going to stop this relationship or I'm going to stop these dynamics. And um, uh, I guess was in a place where I felt like, am I going to stay here forever? Yeah, yeah. This place of like severe anger. And my dad, who I had a really great relationship with, I remember said something to me like, look, like, I think what you're experiencing now is that your anger is, like, the most... feels like the most authentic and valid part of you that, like, you have probably felt in a long time, right? Like, it's an emotion. It's a valid emotion. And that anger, like, is projecting you and bringing you into a place and a space you need to go. But to deny it is unhealthy, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, like, it's interesting to hear you telling this story because it's, like, that anger in itself is what catapulted you into... It was like useful, right? it was like yeah, yes. you
2: know, in a, in a semi destructive way, obviously, yeah. in the beginning, um but without that experience yeah i wouldn't have i wouldn't have started to ask some of the deeper questions or realize the way out, so for example, like to recognize that I had that level of anger or capacity in me um was one thing, but then to go, okay, so what to figure out what the hell is this mm-hmm. and um and how does it resolve, and so even in terms of treatment we 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 coin um, you know treatment for this kind of condition or for anger issues as anger management, and uh, I think there's a, a a better option and that's anger resolution mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that we never we lose the capacity for anger, but that we resolve the source of where the anger is coming from and so what I learned, for example, that you know anger is what I refer to as a secondary emotion, so it's a particular right. kind of emotion where it cannot exist by itself, so there's always a because of factor so angry because of and there'll be another emotion behind that Um, and for most people it's either some flavor of fear or sadness and for men those are speaking of taboo you don't go there you know so we're not allowed to be sad and we're not allowed to be afraid um, because those are signs of weaknesses in our culture you know Mm -hmm. and And I'm progressively even seeing that more and more for even the women that I work with. There's that kind of adoption of that that mindset. More than there was even 14 years ago. So not being too tangential. So I thought, well, okay, so to resolve this or to get back into a healthy balance, I've got to find what the primary emotion is and then be able to express that in its authentic way. Mm -hmm. So if there's nothing for the anger to essentially feed on, so if there's hurt and sadness, which again, going back to my father, that's what I was, dev- I've just so much hurt, so much sadness that I didn't have a place to process that with. Right. And if that accumulates over time, then it's going to be explosive and it's going to be ugly. And so all the men that I worked with partly you know, helped reinforce this. And what I learned was that if a person could get into their primary emotions, identify and then express it in its primary way. Mm-hmm. So hurt and sadness typically get expressed through tears. Fear sometimes gets expressed through tears, but also some shaking, some body somatic um, types of symptoms. Um, if they allowed for that to process to happen, there was a shift. And one of the really interesting things, which I think then led me to be able to build my practice, was I got really good at predicting who was going to reoffend and who wasn't. Mm. And it was based on that simple thing can they get to their primary emotions? Can they get to their original wounds? Can they resolve that pain? And if they can, they're not likely to reoffend. Mm. And so, um, so yeah. So that was the probably the most important core lesson that I've learned is that.
0: What do you feel like was the factor that was involved in allowing some men to get there and some men not to? Was it like an outside support network? Was this it, is awesome?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what's interesting is I think there was a lot of weird things that kind of came together that I wasn't really aware of at that time. So as a group facilitator, um, and maybe this is important. So the dominant narrative in treatment of, of, of offenders like what we're talking about, mm-hmm. of angry men, um, domestic violence offenders in this case, is psychoeducational. Mm-hmm. So the idea is these people are acting this way because they don't know better. And so if you teach them different skills, they'll employ those skills. Um, that's really not how it works. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, now there's, sometimes there's room for skills. Maybe they don't know what, you know, um, active listening is and maybe you can help them, you know, understand physiological warning signs and when they need to take a break and all that stuff. But if you're not getting to the traumas that created the anger in the first place, those those things are fairly useless, I found. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, and I'm maybe going to jump around a little bit. So if I'm not clear, let me know. Um, But one particular day, um, there was just a guy, he just, he just could not, he couldn't keep it, he couldn't keep the guard up anymore. He was just, could not keep it up, and he went to share with the group, and he just broke, and just tears flooding, big sobs, big heaves, Hmm. and I watched the other guys around there, and it was the first time that it happened, and, you know, and I had people in there that, and in gangs and violence and you're, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, tough guys. Yeah. And nobody responded how we would typically think to respond. Um, like, you know, pull yourself together. You're being weak because it was really vulnerable and authentic and it mm-hmm. was real. So there was something really powerful about that. Um, so a lot of people just listen. They didn't do a whole lot, but they didn't shut him down and they didn't try to talk him out of it. And. After these first few minutes when he kind of came out of that, you know, this was the first experience, there was a whole shift in his color, his demeanor, there was a softening in his body, and, um, you know, an ability to breathe differently. I mean, a complete transformation in that moment. And what I realized by the fact that not a lot of other men had responded negatively like we had been taught, Mm -hmm. that there was something that was protective about that group, Mm -hmm. And it was something that all the men had craved. And then later on, um, I remember one guy who had said to somebody else who had broken down, that you just scared the hell out of me um, because now I know what I have to do. And this was out without any instruction. So there's something innate in us that goes, that shit needs to come out of me too. That's what I'm carrying. Yeah. So I didn't need to teach it, didn't it. We have a knowing in there that, that we're carrying around that pain. And so when it comes out, there's its own invitation for other people. And so from that moment forward, what I realized is my job as a facilitator was to create safety. It wasn't to change anybody. It wasn't to directly treat you know treat anybody in the traditional way. It was to create safety. So if I had somebody in there who I thought would shame, would humiliate, would put down, would be critical um, then I didn't have them in my groups. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was my role is to protect that group and to make it safe enough for when a person would come in carrying more than they could possibly carry, that that could come out and there wouldn't be any shame and humiliation. And if there was, given that I was doing forensic work, I had some power because I could send people back to, you know, court or I could send, you know, I could, you know, terminate them from treatment and they would have to go back in front of the judge to use that power to be to to you know abuse the abuser, which is sometimes what happens, I think it's in treatment setting, is a misuse of that. How I found it beneficial to use it was to keep it keep it safe enough for that vulnerability to come forward. And then I would invite it, you know, this is a place where you can be real. And I made that commitment to everybody that I will remove anybody from here mm-hmm. who doesn't respect that that you know what we're here to do. And we're here to do our work. And our work is that pain that's underneath that anger. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Do you think that that sort of like communal support, I mean, we, it was funny, before we started recording, we were talking about The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Mm-hmm. Great book by Francis Weller. Um, and he talks so much about the communal aspect of grief yeah. uh, and how we don't have that anymore. Yeah. We've completely forgotten it. And I would argue we, we don't really have the communal aspect of much no, of anything. No. Um, so do you think that sort of like communal mutual support of men was... Instrumental in helping some men work through this, like if they were isolated uh, yeah. and didn't have that same reflection that it became more difficult, and those were the people that went on to perpetuate the uh,
2: behavior yeah, yeah. I-, I would say absolutely yeah um now it still happens for me you know i I've, I've got a couple men that I'm working with right now who are those walls are coming down, um, and so it can happen individually as well, so it doesn't have to have that group, but I would say. In contrast, it's harder to get there for men in a group Mm. than it is one-on-one. But when they can get there in a group, and if there's enough members of that group, there is a bond that is unbelievable. So for example, for most of my time, I, I don't even know if there was ever a time where I didn't have people that would continue to come voluntarily. So after their court requirements over, most people, they go into these situations, they're like, as soon as I'm off probation, or as soon as I'm done with this, I'm the hell out of here. And so that, for me, answers the question that, yeah, that it was a very valuable thing for them, that, you know, they finally found a place to be safe where they didn't have to repress and they didn't have to pretend, mm-hmm. you know, so.
0: So outside of, uh, I'm like sitting here thinking like this conversation could go on for four hours. I have mm-hmm. so many questions. Well, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> loquacious, too, so if, you, if, you, if, you,
2: if I could start getting long-winded, shut me down.
0: <laughs> no, it's my favorite thing. Uh, People who like to talk are the best podcast guests. Um, So outside of obviously personal history, childhood Mm -hmm. trauma, societally and culturally, what do you feel like are the, um, like what is provoking some of this rage as well among
2: men? (laughs) I would say it's across the genders. We see it more pronounced um, in men and it's just repression. It's mm-hmm. absolute repression. So we have, we're emotional beings. And I don't know when it started uh, in our history, but we've been essentially at war with our biology. And that can't, can't go well. So for example, when we're sad, a normal response to sadness is tears. Mm-hmm. Okay, Pretty normal for most people. But when those want to come up, most of us push those back down. And that's not without consequence, as far as I can tell. And so it's almost like I see the body as a container and we have a little bit of room to repress. I still do it. There's not, there's times where I'm not going to be vulnerable because it doesn't feel safe,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know? Um, and even if I'm not going to be physically attacked, maybe I'll be psychologically dismissed. And I'll give you a common example of dismissal, which is positive psychology. Oftentimes that's dismissive. Oh, look at all the things you have to be grateful for. And <laughs> what that tells people to yeah. is it tells people that I'm not comfortable with your pain and you need to shut that down,
1: Yeah.
2: you know? Or your pain's not welcome here. So that's the message that we get. So because of that, and because of the further wounding that can happen when we're vulnerable, if we don't have somebody that can can sit with that and receive it with kindness and compassion, we shut it down and we start repressing it. Well, that repression then manifests in certain symptoms, okay? So one of those symptoms is anger issues, okay? That kind of explosiveness. Unfortunately, in our culture, um, and I'm speaking primarily for men, Anger is much more socially acceptable, even though you can get a, you know, a, a criminal record for it. It's much more difficult for people to express their sadness in its primary form than anger. You're not gonna get made fun of, you know, at the next football party, mm-hmm. you know, for for being angry or getting into a fight or whatever it is, you know. So we live in that time. But but to come back to it, so it's the repression of primary emotions that not only influences anger, but it influences the coping mechanisms to either keep repressing the anger, or the other primary emotions such as addictions. So for me, it all comes back to that. So I've never met an addict, for example, who's not in a significant amount of pain and isn't trying to repress that pain. Um, or their anger's gotten them in trouble. So now it's like that coping strategy is off the table, um, but there's nothing that has resolved that pain. So now what? So let's turn to alcohol, let's turn to drugs, let's turn to whatever. So All the manifestation of symptoms that we see in our culture today—depression, anxiety, um, addiction—in my estimation is a a response to an overwhelming sense of pain that has not been processed. Yeah, you know, because we repress it, because we fight it.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you feel like that's and that that's culturally supported because there's this kind of. Uh, projection thing going on where, like, I'm sure you're familiar with Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells this one story about how he's like brought like mountains of paperwork into health professionals to yes. try and say, like, hey, listen, like, there's all of this like insane evidence about how childhood trauma and emotional abuse manifests and all these sort of like physical issues, addiction, et cetera. And that n- people in those groups often have no idea what to do with that information. And he says, because it is a reflection back on oneself, right? Absolutely. So if you feel that pain, sort of like what you were saying in the group, then I feel it. Do mm-hmm. um, you see that, I'm assuming, like, the, or is there anything else well, that you Well, absolutely, and that so to? that
2: gets me back to a, you know, what, you, what you're uh, uh, making me think of is just one of my general criticisms of the clinical profession. Mm. So you can't learn this stuff. You can't learn how to be with somebody in school. So we have to get degrees to practice that, but that... It is absolutely not sufficient. You cannot learn to sit with somebody's pain because you read a book. And so, for example, I would ask somebody, you know, how many books would you have to read to learn how to swim? How many movies would you have to watch? How... There's only one way to do that, to learn that skill, and that's to get in the water. Same thing with this. So empathy and compassion and all these things to be able to sit with one's pain, you have to be able to sit with your own. And you can only be with somebody's pain to the degree that you can do that. And so, in our clinical profession, there's no requirement, at least not that I'm aware of right now. I could be mistaken on this. um, But I know when I was going through grad school, there was no requirement that you even had to do any of your own work. Hmm. And most of the work that's in the clinical field right now is of a cognitive behavioral nature. It's not emotionally based, and it's not physiologically based. So, everybody's looking for the workaround, you know?
0: Yeah, I feel like uh, so many people get into these professions to avoid their own.
2: <laughs> well, you know, and what I think um, happens to, I would agree with you 100% that they're looking to avoid it, but they're also looking to, and I think it's mostly unconscious, mm-hmm. to resolve their issues through another person. So if they mm-hmm. can get the other person, let's say to confront a parent or leave a relationship or whatever, then they don't necessarily have to do it themselves. Like, it's like they work that issue out by getting somebody else to do the task that they're having trouble to do, um, and And that's dangerous, and that's 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 that shouldn't happen, but i I think it happens more than more often than not unfortunately,
0: yeah. yeah, and do you feel like your continued practice like that you, there's so much being mirrored back to you that you keep undoing for yourself and exploring based on your Clients, is it like a continual learning? <laughs> like you're if you're aware and awake enough to pay attention to that. Well, absolutely.
2: That, so like yeah. for example, if i if I leave frustrated or if I find myself frustrated with a client, I mean I really have to really go, what what the hell is that about? Is that really about them or is that about me? Um, is that about something that's coming up for me that I'm not, you know, maybe aware of um and then I'm projecting, so you get this kind of transference, counter transference type of thing. Um and I don't know if this is what you're asking, but I think this is imperative if you, if you do clinical work that you continually do your own work um, because things that may be dormant. So even if you've done a significant, you know, chunk of your work, there may still be things that are going on underneath the surface. And so, I, I think as a clinician, you should, you know, maybe not not consistently. And if I look at my own life, I'm not consistently undergoing therapy. But if I start to see symptoms arise, depression, anxiety in myself, shortness in patience, a quickness to, to, you know, difficulty listening to a client, for example, any of that stuff, then that's a signal to me that um, I've got some work to do and that I should be back and doing my own therapy. Um, So that's something I am regularly engaged in in a different capacity, but not continuously engaged in. So if I feel like things are going pretty well and that I'm present with my clients and that there's nothing that they're bringing up that's overwhelming me or that I'm dissociating from or I'm splitting off from then then that feels okay to me but if I start to see some of those other symptoms then then uh, you know that's that's time for me to get back on the couch so i have unfortunately had a lot of damn couch time in my life so,
0: yeah <laughs> well and i also think that like i mean i've i've had varying degrees of experience with therapy. I've had some therapy that I thought did nothing. Yes. Partial partially, I think because of the therapist partially because I wasn't ready to do Mm -hmm. the work. Um, and then I've had experiences where I was really ready to do, ready to do the work and had an exceptional therapist and that, and like my dad was like, you should go three times a week because that will be so much more effective Uh than having to sit there and update them on the past week of your life. And Mm -hmm. up there's the, there's the hour and there's nothing else to talk about. And that was amazing. Um, but I also think that, like, you know, there's positives and benef- uh, positives and negatives with anything. And I thought one of the things that I took on that is probably, I think, the most challenging, but something that I don't need therapy for all the time is this, like, you know, Carl Jung idea of what we dislike most about others is what we dislike most yeah, about ourselves. Yeah. So it's like anytime I catch myself being angry with someone or judging someone or pissed off, mm-hmm. that like. I stop and I yeah. reflect that back yeah. on myself. And yeah. I feel like therapy is a way to do that in a sort of very
2: potent way. Uh-huh. Um, but it sort of happens oh. in everyday life, which is... Yeah. <laughs> it should if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah. And if we don't let the ego get too ramped up and like, oh, I've got this and there's no more work to possibly yeah. be done. And I've certainly mm-hmm. landed in spots where I feel like I'm in a really good place and um, for right now. But I don't ever get to the point where I think, well, then that means it nothing else will resurface, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that that maybe we haven't seen. You know, and it was uh, one of the things I was going to comment on that you made me think of is, you know, in terms of therapy and what works and what doesn't and being in front of somebody um, where you feel like it doesn't go anywhere and, you know, and then being with somebody where you feel like it's going somewhere. So... In my, I did not finish my PhD, but I did all the coursework and paid all the money, and then I got into a little bit of a political logjam at the end um, around my dissertation committee, and this, that, and the other, and it was a bunch of nonsense. So, um, But one of the beneficial components of that was a book that we had to read, which was called The Great Psychotherapy Debate, and basically it was a meta-analysis of all the kind of psychotherapies that exist today. Um, and looking at, you know, if we tease out these elements, what is it that's creating change? Is it the specific ingredients of the therapy? So is it the techniques that the, you know, that the clinician is using? So is it these cognitive models or is it these behavioral models or this, that, and the other? And basically what it was, uh, Bruce Wampold, who wrote the book, deduced, you know, in his, you know, in this analysis was that less than 1% of the change comes from the actual techniques that are used in therapy. And 99% of it comes from what's referred to as the therapeutic relationship. So how well understood does a person feel? like? Do they feel gotten is what I call it. Do you feel like somebody gives you shit to know your story? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that they're supportive of you? Do they feel that they can walk with you in those deep waters? Um, and if those things all check the box, then therapy is usually pretty beneficial. If that doesn't exist, it doesn't matter how smart the guy is. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable, how well-read he is, or, or you, know, uh, you know, in terms of the therapist, it's, it's probably not going to be that beneficial. So it's all these human connective things that, that lead to change. It's not these goofy techniques that we're, you know, going in there and trying to use. So yeah. I, my advice to anybody, if your therapist is doing a lot of techniques, it's, you know, it's, uh, so that's not where the magic lies. The magic relies in the relationship. So,
0: And I know you talked, uh, briefly mentioned how you had done... Um... A lot of different sort of therapeutic mm-hmm. things for yourself can you talk a bit about what those are and what you might recommend to other people going through this sort of yeah. self-awareness process
2: yeah so so again um piggybacking off of what I just said the most important thing is that you feel safe with who you're working with that's mm-hmm. that's got to be number one um, so I had heard recently that there are over a 1,000 different therapeutic you know, modalities now. And they all have some acronym tied to them. So there's CBT and EMDR and EFT and all this other stuff. And I think that can be a con- confusing for um, a consumer of therapy. Mm-hmm. And to make it real simple, there's really only three, possibly four, depending how we look at it, ways of creating change in our lives. So we have uh, really three, maybe four, which I'll get to um, – inroads and so one of those inroads if we're not feeling well in our life we can try to modify and change our life behaviorally so we've got behavioral intervention so out of all thousand of these techniques some of those are are theories or therapies Mm. some of those are going to be dominantly behavioral and orientation so the therapist or the belief is that you know the key to your personal improvement is found in your daily routine and so they may recommend things like Let's look at your diet and let's look at your exercise. And we know there's some validity there. We know, for example, that you know cardiovascular exercise three times a week is as effective as most of the antidepressant medications out there. Okay, so there's some evidence that behavioral change is effective for people. So I'm not going to poo-poo on that too much. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't work for everybody. And so then there's another inroad where we can try to create change, and that's cognitively. So we can try to create change by you know, changing our thoughts about something. And so there's a lot of therapists out there. there. There are theories or there's therapies that are predominantly cognitive in nature. Maybe they'll have a sprinkling of behaviorism in there, but they might be more dominantly cognitive. And so when they're sitting with a client, listen to them, they're looking for irrationalities in your thought process. And they're going, okay, so if I find these irrationalities, I'll give you a good one. So a fear of flying.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: if you had a fear of flying, you were a client, you came in to me and said, man, I'm having a real hard time with this. If I was a strict cognitive therapist... I would be you know, presenting you with evidence and maybe having you go do some homework and looking at the safety of flying compared to other modes of travel. The idea there is if you see the facts that flying is one of the safest things that you can actually do, that that reality and that fact should calm the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if we can find the irrationality and change our beliefs about things, then that changes. Unfortunately, that sounds wonderful, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. The therapy du jour these days, I would say that if a person was going um, to see a counselor, nine out of ten of them are going to be what's referred to as CBT. So a lot of the education now and a lot of the pushes for cognitive behavioral therapies. So they're going to combine these two camps, looking at both these domains, figuring like you know that 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 the key is in there, either in your thoughts process or what you do daily. What's interesting about that there's there's another inroad, and that is uh, emotions. Okay, so we can either act our way you know around our feelings or just try to change our feelings. We can try to think our way around our feelings or we can try to feel the damn feelings that we don 't want to feel and see if there isn't resolution through that pathway so that's really about all we have and so my recommendation to people too is that you know that whatever makes sense to you, you ask your clinician what is your belief about change and you know, how do you, uh, how do you see change for yourself in your own life? And I know that was part of the, how you asked the question. So for me, um, there's no shortcuts. And I think that the cognitive behavioral stuff really lends itself more to the coping, mm. um, not towards the resolution. I don't find any resolution available in those methodologies. The only way that I find resolution is feeling the stuff that you're t- desperately trying not to feel. And it sucks. so I completely get why nobody wants to feel it. I, there's nothing worse that, you know in life than having to grind through the emotions that you you know have got locked away. Um, but yeah, I don't think that there's anything worse. And so, so from that standpoint, um, some of the somatic therapies, some of the body oriented therapies that can kind of wake that up, that might be the fourth inroad, so like Peter Levine's work or Basil Vander Kolk's work. Um, you know, that's really kind of focused on trauma and the and the body sensory motor processing, very effective. So emotional, bo- emotional or body focused therapies, I find to be much more challenging, much more rewarding, and much more beneficial. Um, so that's what I recommend, and that's what I try to put myself through as well. Um, if I if I need help, and I, you know, don't look forward to it, but but the other stuff just doesn't if it works, it's way too short term. It doesn't really resolve at the physiological level, you know, that, that, yeah, so.
0: And I think really, like, understanding that there is no magic pill and that none of these, like, not one of these therapies is going to work for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. like, one thing that I, you know, I mean, this wasn't intentional, but I think one of the greatest therapies for me was grief. Like that was a way that I awoke to a lot of things. I think I've done very little psychedelics, but I know mm-hmm. that's another one. Um, and I, do you sort of, are you able to talk to your clients in these spaces about stuff like that too? That like anything that feels intuitively like it's going to bring you more toward your emotions is
2: where you should go. Ooh, I'm so glad you asked this because uh, I would not have wanted to leave my last piece um, without saying this. And so you reminded me of it. I have a huge fear of the psychedelic movement. Mm. And it's not for the reasons that most people would think. Um, I hold them in the highest regards. I do not think that there is any methodology that has more therapeutic potential than psychedelics. So if I'm saying that, why would I be scared? And Mm. that's because in a culture that has long repressed their emotions... I don't know that there's going to be enough clinicians who can handle the magnitude of what can come forth in a therapeutic session. Mm. And I think that unintentional harm is likely going to happen um, more than we would like. And what I really fear is then those modalities may go away as soon as they become more legalized um, for therapeutic uh, you know, potential. There are many therapists that I know that I would not take a psychedelic with because I don't think that they could sit with what would come up. Um, so so that's that 's my biggest concern there 's huge power there, and I like to think of it like nuclear power. You know you could light a city with nuclear power, you could melt the damn thing down, mm. and psychedelics hold so much power that um, if that 's not handled well, then it can be then it can be devastating so i 'm hoping if nothing else that like with the maps protocols now, like a lot of the facilitators have to undergo their own experience. But what I found so like even early in my psychedelic, ex, you know, experimental use before it became therapeutic in my life, mm-hmm. when it was more yeah. recreational, I would say for the first you know ten, twelve times, I never, I thought I was immune to the quote unquote bad trip. I, I didn't, um, I did, everything for me was just blissed out, wonderful, um, and then it turned. Mm. And when it turned, it turned. Uh, I happened to be with somebody who who you know who who didn't do further damage i got lucky i mean essentially and i realized that and i'm grateful for the luck i've had Mm. um the other thing that happened is my first trip to peru back in 2015 um, to work with ayahuasca my second ceremony was to this day the most challenging thing i have ever undergone there were moments I could not blink my eyes i couldn 't move. I had no sensory motor functioning at all. I could not breathe I, It would take me you know somewhere between forty five seconds and a minute. Um, when I finally got to the point where I could speak, there was a moment in, the, in that session where I had asked I needed help, and I had asked for the facilitator. There were helpers to come. Give me, but I needed him to pull out of the ceremony. I was in way over my head. Yeah. And I already had dying experiences. I already knew that that was a part of it. I knew that that's a necessary part of a lot of therapeutic healing is this surrender to this dying experience. So cognitively, I was going in wanting what I got and I, was, and I, I still couldn't handle it even though I'd had something that was similar to that. And if that, if that person that I was working with wouldn't have been as well trained mm-hmm. and as comfortable in that space as they were, I could have been severely damaged. So I always like to say that it's like this, you know, the healing happens where the wound happens um, and it's just like physical surgery. So if you open somebody up to remove, let's say, a ben- you know, a malignant tumor, well, there's a reason why they do those in, you know, very sterile environments because when you open somebody up like that, you open them not only up to a healing ca- capacity, but you open them up for the spread of disease, you know, for some other pathogen to get into the body. The psyche, as far as I can tell, is no different. And so we put a lot of faith in, oh, you know, that these modalities are very healing. Yes, they have that healing potential, but in the wrong context, even with good intention, because intention doesn't equal impact. Intention doesn't equal competency. I could see a lot of people wanting to facilitate these sessions with the best of intentions but getting in way over the head as a facilitator or as a client and doing a lot of damage. So, like, for example, I've got I it's not a client that I'm currently working with, but it's been in the last couple of years, who was a big part of their trauma was in a, was an LSD experience where their friends made fun of them and then left them. It wasn't the LSD that caused the problem. Right. It was the context in which they did it. And so um, I hold those in high regard. I Just from my vantage point, we're not... I just don't know that, that these compounds and these modalities are getting uh, the respect or being approached with the caution that I wish they were being approached with. I don't think that you could go you know, do 10 sessions of a psychedelic and really actually be prepared for what could possibly come up. So that's my fear with that. But in terms of what's been most beneficial to me, hands down, um, you know, ayahuasca, uh, as much as it sucked, um, very beneficial. <laughs> But I've also done. Um, there's a place in uh, Denver that does cannabis-assisted psychotherapy, mm. and I hit levels with that yeah. that's rivaled ayahuasca, yeah. and in some ways, were even more intense and even more therapeutically valuable. So yeah. that's another thing that we, you know, I think that's you know misunderstood is that tool is also very powerful, uh, but just a lot of people aren't using it in that way. So
0: yeah, yeah I, I for sure I think maybe that's also not maybe I always said. I didn't really have the desire to do many other drugs aside yeah. from that because I felt like the relinquishing of control that that allowed me to go into was exactly what I was looking for. So like why level up in a way Yeah, yeah, like, yeah this yeah. is a, a sort of release yeah. in a way that I'm able to sort of like calm down and reflect in a way that mm-hmm. feels great. I don't necessarily need to gateway myself into anything else if it doesn't feel, yeah. um, yeah. I mean, I think that you can draw the parallel to regular therapy as well, right? It's like 100. 10% in terms of counseling. And I think also in terms of these alternative therapies, I mean, for me, I feel like one of the things that was most beneficial to me was sort of understanding like meaning and faith and spirituality mm-hmm. in a way that was separate from religion. I think yeah. I was raised to think that there was either religion, which didn't make any sense to me or atheism. I didn't yeah. know that there was a, a place in between. Um, but I think with some of these other therapies, there's this proclivity to like spiritually bypass. And when you have these trips, like I'm God and the counselors think they're God. And it's mm-hmm. just like this. I see it, too. It, it freaks me out. I mean, I um, I did an astrology apprenticeship. And mm. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> as much as there's a lot of that that I took away positively, I was mostly terrified by what I saw in regard to the people teaching these things. Yes. and. And how they were playing what I thought were really delicate therapeutic roles but completely untrained and not ready to enter into those types of relationships with people.
2: Well, in in speaking of that, anybody – so here's a question. I should be asked every single time somebody comes to to treatment with me or Mm -hmm. is considering entering treatment with me or anybody. And I bet you it only happens one out of every 50 times, and that is what – has your own therapeutic experience look like?
1: Yeah. Um,
2: because if a person says, "Well, I've never done therapy, or uh, I don't need it, or in, you know, whatever that may be," um, that's a good way to you know to rule that out. Because if a person hasn't undergone their own work, they can do severe damage. And I think that, that is kind of what you're saying is that you know some of these people have a desire to help, and it may be genuine, but that's that's uh, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. you have to do your work. You have to do your work.
0: Yeah, I'd love to jump back a little bit to gender a bit. Um, Because this is something I talk about quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. as I sort of mentioned offline, have a lot of unconventional opinions about it. You know, I grew up with a dad who I think was, was definitely uniquely masculine. So he was both the bravest person I knew, Uh sort of like the most masculine, but also extremely sensitive and, um, uh, encouraging of emotionality, I saw him cry. He was okay with me having emotions um, and I think because of that, I grew up in a way that i didn 't have a lot of anger toward
1: masculinity mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. or
0: maleness or whatever yeah. um, and so i I feel like that was unique. Uh, in the day, age rare, uh-huh. <laughs> rare. Yes, yes. Um, and I think because of that, and where I sort of get into trouble is because I think I feel sometimes two steps ahead of the game. Like, okay, if we're just to accept, like, of course, men can have emotions. Of course, men can have emotionality. I understand culturally and societally that that's still very taboo. Um, but what I sort of struggle with is like I feel like I think this is happening in both directions. That because of this whole patriarchal imbalance that we have going on that there's this expectation, um, or encouragement that men should be more like women and women should be more like men Mm. without Mm -hmm. sort of like validating the benefits of, of uh, femininity or masculinity. I actually, I asked a question on Instagram recently. I said, Uh can you name for me positive masculine qualities, not one embodied by a woman, but when embodied by a man and like nobody knew how to answer the question. It was like all of these things like um, even uh, protection or leadership or um, anything that I think in a woman would be seen as uh, beneficial, like people were struggling to recognize what those were for men. That sort of masculinity has become demonized and vilified in a way. Um, Do you sense that with your clients at all? Or like how to say you know, if just because you have feelings and emotions doesn't mean you can't still be a man, or or um, do you have people that are struggling with that balance in themselves, or like, um, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, hopefully I'm answering the question and let me know yeah. if I'm not. Um, the simple answer would be absolutely. I think that that's what drives people in there, is that they're having things that they don't believe that they're allowed to have, and therefore it's wrong that they have, mm-hmm. um, and especially the men. Um You know, in terms of, this is an aside, I don't know if this will help answer the question, but I've had been legitimately scared. I mean, I laugh at this because it's like they know they want to go there to this, to these, you know, what what we attribute to the feminine, Um, you know, the sadness, the the vulnerability, the sensitivity, which is where we are able to touch life. You can't really touch life without being sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, So they want that, you know, they want to feel more a part of life, but they don't want to you know, not enjoy the beer at the football game with their friends, or they're afraid that they're going to lose the desire to go hunting or something like this, that right. is, you know, kind of, you know, an extension of that masculinity. That never happens. It's yeah. always an expansion of it. So mm-hmm. it's, it, when, when you ask that, for me, um, I genuinely believe that there's not, there's differences with men and women, but psychologically not too much we just see the expression because of the conditioning that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things that I, kind of a goofy example that I go back to is like anybody who's had children um, or anybody who's watched a child being born, is there any difference with how they enter the world, whether they're male or female? Absolutely none. Yeah. They scream the same, <laughs> scream. They cry the same cries. They they, they have the same expression. Um it's only through acculturation and socialization that we start to sh- cleave these things off. So, in my ex- in my experience, um, the unique qualities of both the, f- the the female and the or the feminine and masculine get enhanced when we honor what's similar between us, which is we both feel sadness and we both express sadness in the same way. We both have the same physiological responses to sadness in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Loss hurts in the same way, we both have the capacity to feel guilt, we both have the capacity to feel shame we both have the, you know so all these emotions that we have capacity to feel um, i don't think that there's that much difference there. Um, I think when we're trying to shut those things down is what really kind of drives the differences that we that we see and i don 't know if that answers it but but um, but yeah so i I think the things that you know for me personally um, Being more in touch with what's been ascribed to the feminine, which I still see as masculine, I don't see that it's weakened me at all. Um, I don't feel, you know, I don't have any sense of inferiority at at all for, you know, being able to wail and cry in a therapy (laughs) session, for example. I, uh, I think it's enhanced all aspects. So, uh, I think that there's just there's either an expansion or a contraction, Um, and the unique qualities uh, that we have, I don't think, are emotional in nature so much as what we've been kind of led to believe. Yeah. And when I see a woman in my practice, they, they grieve the same as the men grieve, you know, um, when they're really getting into it. Yeah. Now, they may present it differently in the normal you know, aspects of society, and that might be one of the most beneficial things I think of my practice, is that I get to see through a lot of the bullshit, you know, because people will start to take the, put those masks down. And there's not as much difference as I think most people would expect between yeah. men and women.
0: Yeah, and I think it's sort of where we started our conversation with you saying, like, how validating it was for you to be heard and seen. What upsets me now is this sort of, like, well, you're a white cisgender male, and so therefore, like, I don't want to hear from you. Like, we've heard from you enough. And to me, it's like, I see quite clearly, for whatever reason, why there is so much anger and hurt and pain. And to kind of just say, like, oh, the women should rule now or the future is female like these things yeah. frustrate me because i i feel that it's doing the opposite of what we think it's doing it's creating more repression or anger or frustration or confusion among or division you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah yeah
2: right separation which we don't function well when we feel separated mm. um yeah
0: yeah do you feel in your practice do you see that sort of like war of the sexes in
2: some way you know, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know if I if it shows up in my practice as much as it does outside. You know, like mm. what what you're describing that you see.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, y- yeah, and so I don't really know what's 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 driving that per se. I mean, I'd, I'd have to you know, I don't know really where that's where that. You know, again, I just go back to what drives that kind of anger or category, you know, that, 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 you know, us versus them. It's the like projection, I feel like. Yeah. It's, it's still, for me, has to come from multi generational repression. Hmm. And it just, that needs an outlet. It just needs an, it just absolutely needs an outlet. And I think it then takes on a distorted form, you know. um, there's pain that's projecting that. And so we're just using, you know, let's say a a, a a gender identity as the target. That's just, we need an expression, just a target to project that to, but it has nothing to do with that. I don't think a lot of it has to do with what it looks like it has to do with it, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So it's not, I don't know that there's a um, that, that kind of hatred and that kind of, that anger that we're seeing and that division. Um, I think that could be just a... a a manifestation of that of that just generalized you know uh, yeah just a generalized repression of, of one's pain wherever the hell it came from and so it's just now specifically targeted in a certain way
0: yeah you know? and there's so much of it I mean I think yeah. that's again like reading that Francis Weller book was mm-hmm. so enlightening for me to recognize that you know one of the first things that happened to me when I entered into this space of emotionality was like someone basically said like, this isn't normal. Nobody suffers like this, you know, this isn't. And I, I, again, for whatever reason had an intuitive sense of like, "Mm, I think this is exactly, like this is the worst, (laughs) most painful place that I've ever been. But I feel like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I don't know why Mm. I don't know where this is going, but I feel like this feels real, you know, and clean in a way. Terrible, but clean. Um, and then, yeah, like being able to actually consult resources and, and recognizing that we've got so much to be sad about and that that's, that's it.
2: okay. <clears throat> that's yeah. it. And, and that it's not only just intellectually okay. We're going to have to honor the physiology that's behind that sadness. The mm-hmm. body has its way of expressing that sadness, um, just like the body has its way of cleaning out food poisoning. I can't imagine us recovering from a stomach virus or a food poison. I mean, I'm not, I don't enjoy throwing up, but I cannot imagine um, that if we learn to just hold that in, that <laughs> that would be good for us. And so as long as we're at war with our biology, uh, that's going to create some problems. So it's not even just recognizing the sadness. That that's the first step. It's, just, it's there. Can we find a way to honor the, the, the body's desire to express that? And if we can't, we're going to see continued wars. We're going to see continued, you know, these, these uh, you know, these whatever the heck it is, you know. Illnesses. This, I mean, it's like it's illness, manifesting in the body whether we want to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the body wants to get rid of it. We all have a sense of that stuff wanting to come up, and we know that resistance to push it back down. That is not good for us. I mean, we don't have any evidence that it's good for us. So somehow, if we're going to get out of this mess, and Learn to be kinder to other people and not project based on gender role or whatever the heck it is. We're going to have to find a way to work our pain through, as far as I can tell. That's my best guess. Yeah. Um, and honor that there's a physical response to that. And yes, it sucks, but, that, that, but that that's part of our design. You know, I don't think that we have anything better than what the body comes equipped to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end it on. Thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, though, there are two things. One, I always ask all my guests if there's one book that you could recommend to everyone listening, what might that be? And I know that's a shitty question because <laughs> it's hard to choose. And if you want to say two or three, that's fine.
2: Man. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I would cheat. Uh, somebody, who I, who, somebody whose work um, I just recently came across, and I'm frustrated by it because I think that their work, um speaks most closely to what I've witnessed in my own practice is the work of Alice Miller. Um she's passed. She wrote a number of books, but one of the more fascinating ones um and a big aim for her was looking at the long-term effects of, you know, uh repressed emotions in childhood that stem from abuse or neglect. And um she even examines things like uh there's a book that's uh titled For Your Own Good that looks at, you know, how did not only how did Hitler come to power, but how was it that he was able to have so many people to execute his message? Fascinating. So that's probably my – the recent one, um, and again, I'm cheating. The, the Francis Weller book is, is amazing. Ine Gabor Mate's books are amazing. Um,
0: did Miller yeah. write Drama of the Gifted Child? He did write yeah. Drama of the that Gifted Child. yep.
2: like – Insanely enlightening. To so me. F- so far, if I, if, let me pick one that of Alice Miller. Um, right now, um, the body never lies because mm-hmm. that kind of summarizes what we're talking about.
0: Here. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you?
2: So um, my my practice has a has a website, and it's www.nd, um, which stands for New Directions. The number four, and then the word life l i f e dot com. So um, ndforlife.com. dot and I've got some things that I've written on there, and some other recommendations for books and, and a resource page as well, so people can some you know find things that I have found valuable and that my clients have found valuable there um, yeah, so that's that's how to get in touch with me yeah,
0: awesome well, thank you so thank much. Thank you so
2: much. I appreciated it
0: Hello again, thank you guys for sticking around and listening to that episode. I meant to say this in the intro, but I forgot sorry about any dog barking you may have heard. <laughs> one of those sort of uncontrollable, uh, podcast situations. I did think it was actually like kind of appropriate that there was a crazy ass dog barking in the background while we were talking about anger and rage. It's definitely testing my anger and rage. Certainly that dog was not having a good day. Um, anyway, tried to edit that out the best I could, but alas, that is the, uh, beauty of the live recording. Um, If you'd like to support the show, uh, as I said, just share it. Share it with people. Post about it on social media. Um, You can always head over to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review and some stars. Um, If you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates and throw a few bucks my way. Um, That always helps so I can keep driving around and talking to people in person. I think... Those in-person conversations are uh, better than the remote ones, if I can help it. So that's really at this point what that money is going for—going to um, affording me the possibility to travel around, pay for gas, and all of the other things that I must do to move. Um, today, I'm going to play out with a song called "Hot Tears" uh, by Leaf. I think it's Leif Voliabeck. I could be totally butchering that name. I should probably have figured that out before I said his name on the show. Oh, well. Um, I have played a few of his songs before. Uh, he's got a new album coming out called... Um, actually, I don't know what it's called. His previous album that I liked is called Twin Solitude. Um, but yeah, I think he has a new album coming out and the song Hot Tears, it's called, is on the new album. And I'd figure a song about crying was the best uh, song to play on this show, given that we talk so much about emoting and freaking sobbing. It's good for you. Um, and also the video to this song, actually, if you search for it on YouTube or wherever, um, is really beautiful. It's a dancer, um, and it's a beautiful piece. I uh, definitely was able to tap into a lot of my emotionality through physical movement, specifically dancing, um, and the way that this woman's dancing in the video reminds me a lot of how I was dancing, kind of flailing myself around until... I was finally able to release and let go of the control that was keeping me from just fucking sobbing. Good for the soul, you guys. Um, so yeah, enjoy the song and I'll talk to you guys next week.
1: coming? to you hear the night from the river bridge? I hear the thunder. I hear the storm in your skin. on mine. tell me what's the story morning glory. Whisper it to me in a grand hotel, telling me all the time I'm sorry. Babe, but don't I know it? It ain't hard to tell you. Well, I know. Yeah, I know. You get so low. Get high Before you go Come say hello Cause I'm never gonna find a way To say goodbye 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 Hot tears Hot tears in the evening in the whole the highlands down in the hall up against the wall i know you're struggling what's the cold. why you gotta call it anything at all now is it a dream of some soft poison eyes looking away there yeah, you bled the blues yeah is it a dream of some soft Go, come say because 'cause I'm never gonna find a way to say goodbye, 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 Hot tears.